Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Sergeant Jim Purvis. Purvis served in the Army as an infantryman during the Vietnam War. My name is Jim Purvis, and when I left the Army, I was a sergeant. I was in the infantry. Uh, I was actually trained and designated as a mortarman, but I served as an infantryman in Vietnam and uh, as a drill sergeant later on. Well, I'm an Ohio boy. I was born and raised uh, in Cleveland Heights. And I was in college, and I was dissatisfied with uh, what was going on in my life. And I felt a, what many young people do, a desire to be part of something bigger and to kind of test themselves. And the result was I joined the Army. And I actually joined intentionally to go into the infantry. Though I have to say that at the time I joined, I had no intention of being a private in Vietnam. I thought I was going to be a lieutenant in Germany drinking beer, but it didn't turn out that way. Actually, I was never trained as a mortarman. Uh, When I got out of basic training, they give you a week's leave. People usually go home. But I had chosen to enlist with uh, the purpose of going to OCS. So I asked, went down to the local ROTC. I was in college at the time. And I said, where's the best place to take basic training? Because it was going to be in January. So they told me Fort Jackson. So I went uh, went down to Atlanta and enlisted there. And after it was over, I was a long way to go home, and I wanted to save my leave because I wanted to see the world. I still thought I was going to be a lieutenant in Germany. I thought I'd be going to France on on leave. So I didn't take leave, which meant I showed up to my advanced infantry training unit 
before anybody else did a week early and there was nobody there and the guy running the office uh who was a i don't know a specialist fifth class or something like that uh realized i was reasonably educated and had me help him in the office now this is during the huge buildup when everything was a mess so when it came time to take training he told the company commander he needed me to help run the office so they kept me in the office virtually the entire time that the training went on so when i got out of there and went to ocs i had never actually gone through mortar training in fact i'd never gone through machine gun training or just about anything else except uh, marksmanship and i was a good marksman well i actually went to ocs infantry ocs at what was then fort benning and i had a company commander that was tall and skinny like me and about halfway through your training they take you out uh the tac officer the second lieutenant in charge takes his group out into the woods and you drink beer and bond and they had people do imitations of other people and when i did the company commander it was so good that everybody was cheering and laughing and the next day at formation i was called out in front of the entire formation and asked to do my imitation and i stood there and said this is not good but what do you do so i did it and then about a, a two weeks later we had some formal event and i was introduced by the company commander to his wife as this is cadet purvis and he does imitations. And subsequently, um, I was kicked out on uh, what probably I could have fought and stayed in, but they found civilian clothes in my laundry bag, and which you weren't supposed to have. And um, obviously I would have just gotten demerits, but I, he's listed as an honor violation. And I was subsequently uh, under his direction uh, removed from the program. But I, I don't think it was a bad deal, all things considered in retrospect. It was probably for the best that I had no business being the leader of people in combat at that time. I had no idea what I was doing. But that's what happened. Well, after I got out, I was very clear I didn't want to be an enlisted man, so I volunteered for flight school to fly helicopters. I went to flight school and they told me that it would only be a couple of months before I went to flight school. And where did I want to go in the meantime? Being naive and very curious, I said, well, two months, I'll go to Vietnam. I'll get to fly halfway around the world, maybe take some leave, see Vietnam and come right back. So off I went innocent and naive as I was. And when I arrived at my infantry unit, I said, I won't be here long. I'm going to flight school. And everybody laughed. And I used to go down every couple of days and say, where are my orders? And of course, they never came through. So I went through a whole bunch of things that you, we can discuss later. And I finally realized I did not want to sign up for three more years. I just wanted to get out. And I'd been over there for 
for a long time. And then one day, like 10 months down the road, I got called into the company headquarters. Now, this is in a tent in the jungle. And I said, I was told, did you apply for flight school? And I said, yes. And they said, well, your orders have come through. And I said, really? And you said, yeah, you got to ship out, go back to the States. Well, that was a pretty exciting idea when you're a young guy and you've been in the jungle with everything that had happened to me. But I knew that at some point I'd be asked to sign uh, this extension for three more years, which I had no intention of doing at that point. So I went to brigade where you go through a process and then I go battalion and then brigade and then division. And each time I'm thinking, this is it, I'm gonna go back to the jungle. And then I went to Saigon. And then I went to Tansanud Air Air Base and I got on this Continental Airlines jet. And until they closed the door, I still didn't believe it. And they flew me all the way back to the States. And then I went to the Pentagon and said, geez, I've changed my mind. I don't want to go to flight school. And the sergeant looked at me and he said, you were in Vietnam for nine months and 29 days. 10 months is considered a tour. You didn't do it, so you're going back. And I was like stunned. But I had to go to flight school in order to tell them that I wasn't going. You couldn't do it any other way. So I showed up at flight school and uh, told them I didn't want to go to flight school. And they they sent me over to this Quonset hut. It's out in Texas. And I walked in full of trepidation that I was going back and uh, there was this civilian woman sitting there with a strong Texas accent. And she said, good morning. Where do you wanna go? Fort Dix, New Jersey. And she said, done. And that was the end of my Vietnam experience. I haven't thought about Vietnam in quite a while and uh, doing preparing to talk to you caused me to do that. It was very surreal at first. Uh, I only have my experience, and my experience was as an infantryman with the 1st Infantry Division. Uh, I was not a Marine. I was not at Quezon. I was not there during the collapse. My experience physically was very much like the movie Platoon, except there wasn't widespread marijuana use then. But it was surreal because when you fly to Vietnam, you know, you see war movies and you have all these troops on troop ships and they're cleaning their weapons. When you went to Vietnam, you went on a commercial airliner. I flew on TWA. And the only difference between a commercial flight is that all the other people are wearing uniforms. There were air hostesses giving us food and talking to us. And then when you finally get to the base camp, um, you it still doesn't seem real because you haven't seen any actual war. The first thing that happened to me was they flew me out to my unit on a helicopter close to evening. And the first thing I did was to put dead bodies back on that helicopter. And coming from the having no experience, it was sobering, but it was also somewhat 
surreal. It takes time to adjust to an experience like that. I got shelled that night, which was also uh, surreal. And then you begin to acclimatize to actually being involved in something like that. But even that was surreal. I, I don't think people understand how infantry units, at least in the early part of the war, operated. You would have a perimeter. We'd be out in the jungle. And you'd set up a large perimeter, battalion-sized operations. We usually did uh, what then was called search and destroy, which is sweeping an area. Usually, we didn't find much, but it was always within helicopter range of the base camp. So in the morning, you'd wake up and you could turn your radio on and listening, listen to uh, uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Adrian, I forget his last name, I heard him every morning. And then helicopters would come in and bring Merrimack containers with bacon and eggs and toast and coffee. And then the helicopters would fly out, you end the perimeter, and you would suddenly be at war in the jungle, trekking through vegetation and getting shot at and everything else. And you'd do that all day, whatever happened. And then in the evening, you'd set up a big perimeter. And in would come the helicopters with your pork chops and mashed potatoes and a can of beer. Um, and there's an element of surreality to fighting a war that way. In that particular unit, uh, we, were, we were not at a, a truly forward base camp. We were at, a, at more of the brigade level. But you have tents, you have beer, you have steaks, you have barbecues. Part of this, in a way, the surreality of it all. When you went out, you were in real danger. When you were not out, you were not. Occasionally, the unit might get mortared, but a brigade base camp usually uh, didn't get very much of that, not where we were located. We were located uh, west, right on the edge of uh, west of uh, Saigon. Um, I've actually been in Cambodia, I assume. I don't, there's no boundary lines out there, but we were out at the very edge of uh, the controlled area west of Saigon. I can tell you that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. That should be obvious from this conversation. I was as civilian thrown into the mix as you could probably get under the circumstances. And I very much was aware of sticking with everybody else. And if they knew what they were doing, I was going to be okay. So as the junior person on a patrol, I carried the radio and I was in the middle of the column. So I was new enough and foolish enough to not truly know where we were going. The experienced people had it out on a map. They knew the ins and outs. The patrol leader did. You had total trust in a patrol leader who was a sergeant who had been doing it for a while. Uh, somebody who'd had multiple tours and volunteered for them. You basically, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. The vast majority of being in war is boredom and effort, marching, climbing up, climbing down, climbing through in the case of the jungle. Um, and there are just moments of something else happening. But you never know when that something else is going to happen. 
and you're forced to try to have constant awareness, which as a human being is very hard to do. I can remember, you know, marching through the jungle, walking, not marching, a bad term, walking, and then, of course, stumbling upon a tripwire in the middle of nowhere. And yet there it was. And if you tripped it, you would be dead. So it it had that kind of hour by hour feel constantly ants crawling on you constantly. Uh, when you stopped, for instance, you just lay down and slept on the ground exactly where you were. When you're out with an infantry unit, you usually we form a circle with our feet together. But you don't move, you don't talk, and you just lay there. And if something crawls on you, it crawls on you. That's pretty much what day-to-day was like. And I think I've described to you when you're in an infantry unit, as opposed to long-range recon, when you're out there alone, what it, the, the unreal part of the breakfast and dinner and the radio and the idea that there are airplanes constantly flying over you, hovering over you, protecting you. Uh, it's certainly not what the enemy had. The people that we were fighting were living, breathing, and dying and uh, eating, grubbing rice and everything else. But we we knew that we would only be there one year. We had radio stations blasting music. We had this great food. And then in the middle of your tour, you got a week of R&R in Japan or Singapore, wherever you wanted to go, free. It, at the same time, you ran the risk of getting shot and killed. And I think it was only when I changed out of a large infantry battalion and went into long-range recon that I truly understood that. So I'm not completely sure that uh, it has ever truly hit me. I was fed up with doing KP and a bunch of boring stuff that infantry soldiers have to do. And I thought, well, this is a chance to do something different because they emphasized that you only went on patrol or relaxed. There was no other duties involved. And so I jumped into it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I probably should preface this by saying I got a taste of what war really was, but I didn't get a bad enough dose that I have nightmares. And so that makes me a lucky person. 
Um, Winston Churchill once said, getting shot at unsuccessfully is a very exhilarating experience. I've misquoted him. It's not exhilarating, but it does give you perspective. My first experience on, we used to call it LERPs, um, five men dropped in and by helicopter, hopefully unobserved, to try and locate enemy forces. So you're basically walking and operating without speaking virtually, uh, spread out in formation, not on a trail in, in the, excuse me, the jungle itself. The first patrol and quite a few of the patrols, uh, and we never actually ran into anybody. Uh, you're basically by yourself in a very silent green jungle, which actually has a certain amount of beauty to it, although there's a certain amount of anxiety at the time. But because nobody's talking, it's a very quiet, carefully, your footsteps are done very carefully. Um, it's, it's an experience until, of course, something happens. We went in, you always are inserted just before dark or right at dark. The smaller clearing, the better. It's big enough for the helicopter, but small enough, uh, hopefully doesn't have a, a major force there. We went into the jungle. You basically go in uh, to get off the landing strip, and then you the helicopter leaves, and you basically pause for a short period to see if there's any other activity, and then you the point person begins to move forward. Well, in this particular case, we had apparently sat down next to a North Vietnamese battalion base camp, and shortly after the first man, the point man started going, uh, he fired some shots at the same, I was carrying the radio, so I was the middle person with the lieutenant behind me. And the lieutenant uh, cut the straps, uh, the, the point man started yelling, uh, my gun's jammed, somebody shoot. The guy behind him started shooting and off to my left, because we each had a sector to watch, I saw Two North Vietnamese soldiers actually drop down um, and point. And at that that particular moment, I I was frozen dealing with the radio. They called in, they turned had the helicopter turn around and come back, and we were by then all firing. And uh, uh, what seems like seconds later, the helicopter appeared, and we ran and dove onto the helicopter. And as we were coming out, there were tracer rounds going all around the helicopter. And uh, that's when I realized how close I probably came to not doing this interview. Although I don't think I really realized how close that was uh, until quite a bit later. You, you have a certain defense mechanism that protects you from thinking about that kind of thing. When I think back and watching the tracer rounds go about two feet in front of the windshield of the helicopter, I mean, you can see right through the, the Hueys. If either of the, if the, any of that had, had been like two feet closer and they were shooting from probably 10 feet, 12 feet away on the edge of the clearing, I would imagine. I mean, I wasn't looking back. If any of those had hit the pilots, we'd all have been dead. Or 
conversely, if the helicopter had arrived a little later, I'd probably have been a prisoner of war if I hadn't been shot dead right on the spot. I mean, I literally saw the soldiers that were looking at us. Why they didn't fire, I don't know, but they didn't. And probably because they were as stunned as we were that we'd run into them. I mean, it was a very quick moment of seeing them, but I, I saw them clearly. Um, if we'd have been standing there probably another minute and a half, I'm sure they would have opened fire and we would have probably not been uh, pulled out. And that would have been the end of it. This particular kind of unit, you had a certain amount of free time. So drinking beer and talking was probably uh, 50% of it. In an infantry unit, uh, you know, you don't have time to think about all this stuff. Things keep happening. In a unit like this, you do what you do, and then you come back, and you have downtime until the next mission, which could be in a few days, or it could be a week later, it could be whatever. Um, I did not experience a case on like repeated experience, which would have traumatized me uh, more than whatever this one did. I'm sometimes not sure how much I've repressed about this. I know I can't really watch, I can't watch the movie Platoon. I watched it once and that's it. I have no, so many movies are unrealistic uh, Hollywood depiction, imaginations of it, but Platoon was quite real and it affected me to watch it. The patrols were relatively short, uh, you know, two to four days, two to five days in that area. You were basically going in because there was reports of activity in the area. So you were basically attempting to, to well, you were attempting to run into people, but hopefully without them seeing you so that you could report the location, get back out and have an airstrike. That's presumably what happened after we left that one time. Uh, there were a lot of units, long-range recon units, that had it a lot worse than I did. And once again, I was a very lucky person. Uh, the particular unit, the 1st Infantry Division Long-Range Recon Unit, uh, there were probably, I, I really don't remember, four to six teams. Um, it... Disband, effectively disbanded because the team leaders felt that the uh, officers in charge of the unit were incompetent. And I left and went back to my other unit, the infantry unit at that point. Um, but some of them, you know, it, it, it's all... The thing about war that people don't appreciate is how much of it is chance or luck. I mean, you can stand there and nothing happens to you, and a person standing next to you can get their head knocked off. And it's just, by any real definition, luck who was standing in the path of it. I'm probably a reporter at heart, uh, an observer. Uh, I don't think the combat was surprising as much as the whole unreal atmosphere of that, what happened out there. I, it was very clear that we were not fully engaged, that there were, I can remember having the entire battalion form up. We're talking a couple hundred people in like a parade formation in the middle of this base camp, in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of a war. 
so that it would look good for a general arriving on a helicopter. And I can remember thinking, this is really strange. I can remember being going into Saigon. I was the, the unit's scrounge, and I was very good at finding things. So much so that the officers sent me into Saigon to get cement for their barbecue. And I hitched a ride on a helicopter. We flew at treetop level into Saigon. And I traded a bottle of bourbon and some combat boots for a truckload of cement. This is real. And then with the driver, um, because they had so much cement that it was solidifying and, and turning into a massive concrete block. So I drove, I got this guy to drive on a back road back to our base camp. And I went to the depot where massive amounts of concrete were coming in by cargo. And I traded a bottle of bourbon and some combat boots for a truckload of cement. Um, that's just the way it went back then. It was, it was just like the early days in Iraq, tons of money being spent uh, without accountability. And I got the driver of the truck. I said, we're going out to our base camp. And I told him, no problem. It's going to be real easy. You'll be back here in about an hour and a half. And of course, we got on the road and immediately outside uh, the major area ran into an MP who said, you shouldn't go down this road. We've had reports of an incident. The driver was panicking and I insisted that he had to keep going. And we we were driving at a very uh, rate, high rate of speed. We went over a bridge. This is a two and a half ton truck with cement on it. And actually the back wheels came off. He was going so fast off the roadway. And we got uh, out to the, uh, to the base camp and the lieutenant had people unload the concrete. The driver went back. I stayed and we built a really nice barbecue. And this is the kind of uh, thing that was going on. And I have to say also, I overstayed over in Saigon on another trip. I stayed in a nice hotel. And I went down to what amounted to the, the PX cafeteria, where they had milkshakes and hamburgers, and they were really good. And I hadn't seen one for like three months at that point. And I went through the line. It was a, uh, you used a tray, and it was like a restaurant. I had a milkshake, I had a hamburger and two orders of French fries. I ate the whole thing. I got back in line and ordered the same thing again and ate that. And then I went back and had a third milkshake. And that's what I mean about, you know, I'm sure that when people went through World War II or Korea, they did not have the opportunity to do that. I, I would imagine it's there's an even bigger element of unrealness when you can go into combat and then go on I get a cell phone call with your wife. These kind of things um, affect people because it's it provides a different form of reality. And that's probably something for another piece and another time. But, you know, I gave a, a speech to, on Veterans Day in, in Ohio uh, this past Veterans Day. And I told people that, it, you know, you can... Look at that mural and you can think a lot of things, but what people really ought to do is they ought to be thinking 
You ought to be thinking about what it means and what it means that all these people went off to serve. Not to the depth of perception that one would have now, but yes, it it was certainly pretty obvious that what we were doing wasn't very effective. And what was effective was spending a lot of money. You can look at Vietnam and now and say, why in the world didn't we just offer uh, Ho Chi Minh $2 billion and offer to build factories and give them the country? Uh, We'd have been where we are right now with a, quote, communist, unquote, controlled government that's actually becoming more capitalist and uh, free market by the day. And we would have skipped having all those people die. But as a country, we have a long history of not looking at things the right way. Not until it's too late. And relearning the same lessons over and over and over again. And I should add that I went there during the big buildup. I kind of joke and tell people, I, I went over there when they were the enemy was saying, who are all these people and where are they coming from? Um. There was a movie about uh, the air cavalry and the fight in Yadrang. We were young once, I believe is the name of it. And that kind of captures the same sense of we weren't really ready or really properly trained. And what are we doing here? And of course, five years later, uh, it was a completely different picture. Uh, But when you rotate everybody out after 10 to 12 months and you bring in fresh people, which is what we did in Iraq, you lose the sense of continuity. You lose the sense of experience and understanding of what's going on. Uh, that's the difference between how effective many things were in World War II, like with the 101st Airborne and what went on. Uh, effectively trained, lots of equipment, but no sense of continuity in dealing with local people, with local issues and things like that. We certainly had that in Vietnam. After Vietnam, after I did not go back after my 10-month tour, and I was at Fort Dix, uh, they made me a drill sergeant. Now, you understand, I'm the guy that wanted to be an infantry officer and went halfway through OCS. So I had the gung-ho, curled fingertips attitude, and I was a drill sergeant. And I did that for, I don't know, three, four months, five months, something like that. And then I I talked to one of the other drill sergeants who said he was getting out of the Army 10 months early. And he said there was this program that you could get out of the Army 10 months early for seasonal occupation. Now, I assume this was originally designed for farmers. And he was an actor. And he had applied to get out 10 months early so he could do summer stock work. And the Army okayed it. And I was dumbfounded. And by then, I actually really wanted to get out of the Army. And so I went into uh, New York City on a bus. And I went to Herman's Sporting Goods store. I can remember this instantly. I I read up on ski equipment on the way in on the bus, and I told them I wanted a job as a ski salesman. And they gave me a letter saying they were offering me a job as a ski salesman. Now, by now, it was like the fall. So I went back and applied to get out 10 months early based on my need to be a ski instructor. 
And I took it into the first sergeant and uh, along with the letter of offer of employment. And he used a very strong expletive and told me to get out of his office. And then I went in and spoke to the S1, the operations officer, who I knew, and gave it to him. And he said, sure. And he signed it. And I got out 10 months early. Once again, I probably don't have the same, because my experiences were real and touched combat, but were not continuous. I didn't spend, I I hate to keep going back to it, but I didn't spend three months being shelled in Quezon. Something like that devastates people. When I was coming back, you go through a series of uh, camps as you you sign out and go up to. And I remember at division base camp, there was a holding area for people that were leaving. And there were probably 30, 40 of us sleeping in there at night. And there were people in there screaming in their sleep. And it's very sobering to listen to something like that. Fortunately, I don't consciously have any memories that cause me to scream. And I I hope I haven't repressed any. One never knows. I, I think I didn't go from Vietnam to civilian life. I went from Vietnam to Fort Dixon drill sergeant and weekends in New York City. So my transition back was a lot easier than an awful lot of people. Um, war is something that traumatizes people. And a couple things to remember. The majority of people that join the military don't actually serve in combat. Now, we have six or seven, I forget the number, of people that are in support activities for every person that's actually in a combat situation. Of course, in a, in a modern warfare in a place against insurgents, the number, the ratio is a little lower because a truck driver can face it as well. But uh, the majority, a lot of people don't, and it, it's very hard. But those that go through it, combat war is something. War is about killing people and destroying property. And that's a definition that I've never forgotten. And that's exactly what it is. It's what's going on in Gaza right now. It's what's going on in the Ukraine. And if you have to experience that for a long period of time or any significant period of time, it traumatizes you. And it's not something that ever leaves you. I certainly don't look at life the same as I did if I hadn't gone to Vietnam and gone through these experiences. Uh, you, you have an awareness of the fragility of life. I can certainly remember being in somebody's living room when they bombed Baghdad the first time and everybody's cheering. And all I could think of is a lot of people are going to die and a lot of them are going to be Americans. And that is, of course, exactly what happened. Anytime you have a war, it's a very, very sad experience. That was Sergeant Jim Purvis. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. 
Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.